we had offered like 15,000 higher than the asking price was. And he said there were four offers on that house that were more than $150,000 over asking. Like it was a nice observation. Like, hey, people weren't really digging deep into how this thing works. They were taking this part of these constructions at face value instead of digging deep to gain a better understanding of, of this basic tool, which has been around for 50 years and digging a little bit deeper produces a 20 factor improvement. Each of these equations probably took six months. <laughs> Disclaimer, what you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. Hey, this is Luis. Welcome to Welcome Podcast. This week I bring a conversation with my great friend and colleague, Philip Olega. Philip has a Master of Computer Science at the University of Waterloo and works as a security researcher at Isara Corp. This episode, we talk about the housing market, how to start your own business, and some of the things that nobody talks about when you work as a researcher. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> well, we finally made it work. Mm-hmm. My friend, thank you so much for, for coming and uh, accepting to to be in, in this episode. Oh. So tell me, uh, how are you these days? Uh, I don't know. I'm uh, kind of struggling to catch up with what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> struggling to catch up with life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've been through like a very big period in your life of house buying. Like, can you walk us through the process of, of buying a house? The process, yeah, like because I, it's not like you go to a house shop and you say, "Can I have a house, please?" Uh, I think it's I, it's a lot more involved than that. I, I think if they set it up that way, it would probably be a lot easier for everyone involved. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so. First of all, we decided that it was probably a good time to do it, Uh uh, buying a house, I mean. Uh, We'd been living in our kind of smaller apartment for for a couple of years, and uh, we were growing out of space uh, after launching a business and running a business out of our apartment. And then when COVID happened and we were both working from home all the time, uh, the, the space kind of became unmanageable and we had to uh, start thinking about, well, what, what if we had more space? Uh, and we, we hadn't really been in a financial position to, to even to dream about a house for, for a long time. And you know, there were some circumstances that made it so, hey, maybe this is not unrealistic. Uh, the low interest rate kind of helped a fair bit. Uh-huh. So we thought, okay, uh, let's start looking at houses. We'd been kind of casually looking at, you know, listings on real estate websites for a while. Uh, no, I hate this. This is nice. Uh, what if we compromise on, on, on this kind of detail, things like that, figuring out what we actually want. And one day we found a house that we thought, okay, we could actually live here. This seems like it's in our budget. It looks nice. It looks comfortable. We can see ourselves living here. And we thought, okay, what the hell? Let's let's let's, let's try it. <laughs> and through the bank we're with, they have an online tool where you can kind of apply for for a mortgage for pre-approval. Kind of what's the maximal amount they're willing to loan you? And we entered in our information. We got a maximal loan. Uh, it happened to just barely cover uh, the house that we were interested in looking uh-huh. at. And the next day, uh, we, uh, we had a family friend who's a real estate agent, and we were able to take a look at the house. Uh, a lot of commotion at the house, seemed like a lot of people were interested in it. And we thought, okay, so we have to do some amount more than they're asking. Otherwise, we have no shot. It looks like people, a lot of people are looking at this. And the house was nice, but it wasn't revolutionary or, or anything. It needed new windows, it needed a new roof. Like the, the flaws were very surface level. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like this was a dream house or anything. It was just like, this is nice enough that we're willing uh, to put in the effort. So we, we uh, what, what happens with, with the procedure is there, there's like a blind auction that happens. Uh, you talk to your real estate agent, they talk to the other real estate agent, and they say, our, our client wants to offer this amount. 
and then they they collect all the offers and then at a certain time they present all the offers to the people who are selling the house and either they like one of the offers or they try to kind of do a rebuttal or they don't like any of the offers and they say whatever we'll relist the house at a higher price or lower price or whatever so we went through that whole process and uh, we put in our offer 7 p.m that day they're supposed to present the offers and we're supposed to find out and we find out an hour later our, our real estate friend calls us and says well we weren't even close Oh, no. We had offered like 15000 higher than the asking price was. And he said there were four offers on that house that were more than $150,000 over asking. And our heads just exploded because that was uh, like a sizable percentage of yeah. the, the cost the of the overall house. Uh-huh. So it was like, wow, someone's willing to pay like 30% more. <laughs> And they're asking for, for this house. That's insane. What's even happening? So we, I don't know, we were kind of not too dejected by this process because we'd never tried it before. Uh, I don't know. Let's learn what this is all about. Uh, so we spent a little bit more time looking at houses. And the, the next house we found was horrible. <laughs> the, the price was a lot lower than the one that we kind of got blown out of the water on, but it was not livable. It needed weeks of renovations and needed new kitchen, new bathroom. All of the floors had to be replaced. So it was, it was like a sizable project. It would probably cost another $40,000 in months of work. For like investment or something. Yeah. And of course, we'd be having to do all of this work in evenings and weekends that we yeah. already don't have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we thought, okay, what the hell? Let, let's let's try it. And again, same thing. Eighty thousand dollars more than asking. Even really? the house was. No one wants to live there. Clearly, uh, whoever put the offer in was in, intending on just ripping everything out of there and reselling it. Uh-huh. Uh, an interesting thing we learned during round two of learning about houses was uh, you can you can find out. Uh, the the sale history of a house. So we found out this house, this absolute hellhole, uh-huh. uh, had been purchased by the people during the last real estate crash, maybe ten oh, or fifteen years ago, and uh-huh. they paid fifty thousand for the house. Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars for the house, and Whoa. they put in no effort into it. Yeah, they kind of. They didn't do anything. And I think the final sale price of the house was over over five hundred and sixty thousand. So they just made so half a million dollars for for profit just just there. in a how long twelve years. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we had our minds blown again this time on a on a new axis. Yeah. And we had a couple of more chronicles like that where we would find maybe ten or fifteen houses that we're willing to see lowering our standards from from before yeah. even further and our real estate agent would get back to us on the next day like well they were listed yesterday and they're all sold and they all sold for a hundred thousand over asking like, wow oh. what, what what is the meaning of any of these prices even they're yeah it's kind of uh, it's a facade so every house that was being sold in average was like over 100k more than the asking price yeah and next day sales and the next day mm-hmm. so do you know like roughly how many offers did they get? Uh, I know the first one where uh, we were kind of just amazed. I think they got 10 offers. Jeez. Okay. So it's uh, it's like a very active market. market. It yes. So finally, we gave up on Kitchener because obviously we can't afford anything when <laughs> uh, the real prices are a lot higher than what the listed prices are. And there was a house that we liked in, in Elmira, uh-huh. and it was uh, listed for a lot lower than things we're looking at uh, in Kitchener. Kind of the house you buy per dollar was a lot more house per dollar than anything we yeah. looked at previously. And we got lucky because this is the other part of the process of buying a house. Uh, usually they, they have a deadline of you should submit your offers for the blind bidding process by this time. Uh-huh. And if you find a house early, you see it early, and you want to 
uh, give an early offer, then they also accept early offers. And when you do an early offer, uh, they're only obligated to let anyone else who has seen the house up to that point uh, to be aware that the auction is happening. Uh-huh. So you get to kind of be in a smaller pool of competitors. So that's what ended up happening. And I think we just got uh, very lucky. The, the particular house we ended up buying, uh, we found it the day it was listed and we only had one other competitor. Otherwise, who knows, we probably would have been looking still. Wow, that, that sounds insane. Do you think it's, it's probably because of uh, the COVID situation that everybody's getting like very cheap loans? I think that does have a lot to do with it because uh, I think with the interest rates were even a year ago, whatever house you you look at, um, like average average houses, if they cost $200,000 less at the interest rate that was posted a year ago, the monthly payment was still the same as what the monthly payment is now. Oh, yeah. wow. That that is very significant, mm-hmm. and also uh, what we were reading online is uh, or in certain forums is that many people realize that uh, living in an apartment is a little bit small, and probably that was your case, mm-hmm, right? Sure. Because now you, you're in lockdown, so you have to uh, work from home, so you need your own space. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you decide I, I would like to have a, a bigger space because uh, two people or, or however many people live in in, in a house don't fit like everybody working in there and doing their own thing Mm -hmm. uh 24 hours so yeah i think uh for a lot of people having a small apartment it can even be nice in a way like you get home from work it's kind of it's a nice kind of comforting yeah space Mm -hmm. exactly Uh but if you're there 24 hours a day and you're working between 12 and 15 of them on most days it's yeah kind of crowded um so megan works as a speech therapist she uh, during this COVID yeah. situation, she's been providing therapy uh, over Zoom to any client where that's a possibility. And we'd have situations where, well, both of us have to be on Zoom right now. Both of us have to be having completely separate meetings. So uh, one of us has to leave the room. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I used to have meetings with you, you had to leave leave the room uh, mm-hmm. often. Yeah, and also sometimes you just, to have your own space where, I don't know, sometimes you need a little bit of distance or privacy uh, when you need to do work. At least I sometimes it's like you, you need kind of to be alone so that you can stare at uh, an equation mm-hmm. or something uh, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you don't feel that there's a potential distraction on the mm-hmm. on your back. Yeah, true. So I, I really, really understand what motivated you to find a new, uh, a new place. But well, I'm, I'm glad that somehow kind of worked mm-hmm, out. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, uh, the, I think the the change in our stress level since moving has been, uh, has been crazy. There's we have a lot more light now. We have space. We kind of we have uh, the house feels right. like separate pieces. Before in our apartment, it was yeah. we're always we're always two steps away from where we're working. Now the house is kind of compartmentalized. Like yeah. this is the area where we work. This is the area where we relax. And those are, those are separate. Yeah. 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 Uh, That's very important. In our previous apartment, I used to work in the living room. And so there's sometimes no separation because I, I work in the living room and then it comes time to relaxing. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's just like you change from the chair to the sofa and it's the same mm-hmm. place. Uh, you stare at the same screen mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> when you want to watch TV. Yeah, it is very important to have your own space away from work. And and if you have to work from home, so the office better be separate from mm-hmm. everything else. So even now, uh, we ended up leaving our bed at the at the old apartment. We didn't want to take it with us. It's uh, from Ikea. It had uh-huh. barely survived the first move. So we just told our landlord, hey, do you want this bed? It's going to be too much of a hassle to move it, assemble it, disassemble it, and all those things. So we've been sleeping on the floor for the last month, and just on really? our mattress on the floor. And uh-huh. uh, compared to that apartment, uh, it's I think we've been sleeping a lot better, regardless. <laughs> yeah, probably just sleep better because your stress levels mm-hmm. are different. Even though you've been really uh, busy with article writing mm-hmm. and uh, moving and everything, just having a new place where you have place by your own is it's a mm-hmm. big difference so i was going to ask you like how about the cats did they freak out when you move them 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, so we have three cats. They have very different personalities. Uh-huh. Our, our youngest yeah. cat is very opinionated and she's still kind of not completely impressed by the concept of the house. For the first uh-huh. couple of days, she was hiding in the closet uh, at the very top and looking down at us like, what have you done, humans? Like, how could you do this to me? <laughs> but our, our oldest cat that's moved with us uh, twice now, we've had him in Mississauga. Okay. Uh, he's very kind of, he's very amenable. He's okay with change. He's like, okay, this is a new place. Uh, I can explore. This is nice. Uh, I, I think they're very comfortable now. I think they're happy. There's new places to hide. There's much bigger windows, new things to see. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot more sunlight to sit in the warmth. And uh, we have carpets upstairs. So the, the entire floor is very soft. And I think they've been a very big fans of that too. Yeah, did they destroy it? Did they try to kind of... Uh... Uh, not very much, no. Because uh, yeah, I imagine that if uh, my dog would have carpets, he <laughs> would be crazy about trying to destroy it. But probably he's a puppy mm. right now. <laughs> well, so you, you mentioned that part of the reason you want to move is because you had also started a business. And that's something that I always admire of you too. It's like an, all the entrepreneurship spirit. Uh, can you also walk us through that <laughs> process? Probably the personal decision. How do you decide, okay, I'm going to start a business and what are the steps that you need to take? Mm-hmm. Which one do you want me to talk about first? Kind of how do you do it or, or, or why we did it? <laughs> probably why, because it's probably what mm-hmm. comes first. So actually, we technically had the possibility of doing it a couple of years ago. Um, uh-huh. Megan was working for a small company and her boss was moving out of the country and wanting to sell the business in some capacity uh-huh. or transfer the business. And she asked, hey, Megan, are, are you interested in, in doing this? I think you could, you could do it. And at the time I was in grad school and we were completely overwhelmed just by getting through that experience. And we said, no, yeah. we don't want to do a business right now. Maybe in, maybe in 10 years or something. Uh, it seems like too much. Why would we want to do that? That's a lot of kind of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, well, not only is it a lot of work, but it's a lot of kinds of work that uh, kind of in of itself maybe doesn't seem interesting. Like you have to mm-hmm. do like this bureaucratic process. There's a lot of emails. There's a lot of spreadsheets. There's a lot of right. like, financial details. What kind of software should we use for this thing that we've never even thought of before? Uh, how do you set up a phone system? Like I probably wouldn't have ever thought of doing that otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so we had the opportunity to do it, and it didn't seem like it was a good idea at the time. Uh, a couple of years down the road, uh, we were in a less favorable position, and starting the business became more of a, a necessary process. Uh, uh-huh. So I think what necessitated starting the business uh, was also kind of like a very traumatic experience, and getting the business going kind of uh, happened concurrently with dealing with all of the uh, difficult parts of that. So I I think Uh starting the business uh, was more, it's something that had to be done at that point in time, rather than something we Uh thought, Hey, we have this entrepreneurial spirit. Let's go. uh, Let's go out there and uh, onto this plane and let's do this. Okay. So it was not because of your uh, first opportunity that kind of planted the idea it was more like out of either you do it or kind of hell breaks loose exactly that's interesting uh because it seems to me that many people including sometimes myself think oh how do i start a business i would like to start a business but then i don't know I, there is no like a checklist or a process that you, you follow right you don't know where to start it's, mm-hmm. it's really a big project so how do you start like what, what was the first step this is the first thing that you have to do when you start. Uh, so I guess in, in our particular setup, uh, in, in Megan's field, uh, people often own corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're kind of they're their own person. And then around them, there is this kind of corporate shell and they kind of they do business as an entity uh, for tax structuring, uh, for liability and all those other things. Uh, I think the... Uh, the college that, that regulates the profession uh, recommends that people start corporations. So I think uh, that's actually kind mm-hmm. of, that's a necessary step. 
that we had already completed a couple of years ago. So we had a kind of uh, a very rudimentary uh-huh. scaffolding to start building on top of. But after that, uh-huh. I, I think it's highly dependent on, on what field you're in, what the, what the steps that are required are, like what kind of regulatory bodies do you have to sign uh-huh. up with, what kind of insurance do you need? Uh, what kind of liabilities do you have? What kind of software do you require? How do you need to move money around? Um, do you need to have a website? Uh, do you want to have a phone system? Uh, a lot of those questions are, are maybe questions that don't come up depending on what you're doing. And you figure out on, on the process, like on, on the flight, and you need a phone system, then you have to mm-hmm. figure out, yeah. okay, what's the phone? Yeah. Uh, what is a phone system? Yeah, what is a phone system? How do I set it up? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, what is a phone system? <laughs> well, it's like uh, when you when you dial in to a, a store or something and they say press one for option B, those kinds of things. Oh, I um, see. Yeah, yeah. So I I think a a large part of the process behaved similarly to a research project actually, where I don't know how to start. I don't know what any oh. of these terms mean. I don't. Know, I've never heard of any of these things. Like. I don't know what to consider. So uh, there was a lot of time spent kind of poking around. Like, hey, we're going to need this. Uh, we'll probably need this. Do we actually need that thing? How does this relate to this? How do these compare? Like, what are the qualities that uh-huh. people consider of getting a fax service? <laughs> Who even cares about faxes anymore? <laughs> Why right. is this so important? So there, there's, <laughs> I think, uh, a, a lot of reading to kind of figure out what, what people's experiences are with different things, do they find them useful? Do they find uh-huh. them necessary? Uh, what are their pain points? And kind of pull in as much in- information uh, as possible to figure out, like, is this tool going to be necessary? Is it going to be useful? That kind of thing. Do you think right now you will be able to, I don't know, start a business on now your area if push comes to shove, like it becomes necessary? Mm, I don't know. I've, I've never actually thought about it. I think it is, it is harder. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know because, uh, Probably the circumstances that you two found yourselves in in that moment uh, were a, a bit more appropriate than right now we are in mm-hmm. in our own situation, right? But for example, in in the company that I'm working right now, somehow my boss came up with the idea like, oh, let's now start a business, and he had some I don't know like product in mind, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of materialized. So in that regard, I think it might be possible. Is the circumstances are appropriate? I don't think it is. It, it is impossible. Like uh, Megan's business is a service, so it, it is probably very, very different. In your case, the mm-hmm. product is Megan herself, right? And in the other one, you kind of have to invest some time to construct the mm-hmm. product. It, it kind of works differently. But I wonder if, with your experience right now, you think you will be able to do it. Or what other things you think will be necessary for you to say, like, oh, probably if I had these things aligning, I will be able mm-hmm. to start a business myself. Uh, well, I, I think what you, what you started with is kind of a limiting factor in my, in my perspective. I haven't been in a position where I have to start a business doing it. And as I don't have that kind of catalyst, so I've never really thought about the things like the, the research work or r- related things that I do day to day as being kind of anything that's products driven, like the a product doesn't mm-hmm. come to mind. Yeah, yeah. I understand problems. I think like this problem is important to solve or this problem is interesting to solve. But I think at, at least cryptography is complicated enough, even for the people that understand cryptography, that it's kind of hard to like, <laughs> I, I can't say, look at this Xbox, look at these 4K graphics. This is what you're getting. That's very easy to sell to people. It's something that uh, they can identify with. It's something that resonates, something they understand through some kind of uh, yeah. experience. It's understandable what that is. It's a lot harder to explain what cryptography is, what cryptography does, uh, especially with our, our popular misinformation sources like, oh, crypto, you know, you do you do the Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh-huh. uh, I think in, in, in of itself, like you said, it's not really... That by itself is not a service. It's a it's it's a concept. So a, a, any service that comes out of it is is something that is sort of happening in, in in parallel. It's like how do I well how do I use these tools to provide some kind of service? Mm-hmm. You have to kind of create the problem first, and then by creating the problem, then you justify the solution mm-hmm. that you're providing. 
and many I would believe that many of your potential clients mm-hmm. don't know the problem yet. So that's probably part of the work. Yeah, well, that's a, a, a common uh, complaint about those cryptocurrency things. It's that it's a it's a solution in search of a problem. People haven't really uh-huh. like, yeah, it's very trendy. It's very attractive. It's Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain. This is the thing. Uh, but there, there haven't been a lot of really good applications. Yeah, I, I think using cryptography as a tool and coming up with a problem to solve, that's kind of what we spend a lot of time, uh, especially in theoretical research. Like, oh, it'd be interesting to this kind of construction that supports this level of circuit or, or something. Uh, but these are very conceptual things. It doesn't often come out of, here's an actual problem uh-huh. we have. How can I use cryptography to solve it? Uh, because I think th- the hard problems that we would want to solve using cryptography uh, are still going to be problems that have a large human component to them. And we can't solve the human components just using uh-huh. math. You kind of reminded me of one of the questions I got in the PhD defense. Uh, what is left to investigate in crypto? And I don't think it's a very easy mm-hmm. question to answer uh, because it, you may make the argument that, oh, now we have we have RSA and we have DSA and now they're post-quantum counterparts. So why bother to do it more than that? Do you think it, there is, like from a more practical point of view, do you think there is a space to contemplate that idea that there's probably cryptos already solved? Uh, you mean for like common use cases? Yeah. Uh, well, I think like I can come up with ideas of like the fully homomorphic encryption or like the functional encryption or like the zero knowledge proofs. There's there's lots of yeah. scenarios where those things might be interesting to use. Um, but some of those applications are not usable by a large user base because using the tool itself uh, requires you have a lot of background understanding, benefit from it. Uh, right. Some of the other things like FHE, I, you can come up with like, okay, well, maybe we don't need to sign NDAs anymore uh, because I can send this data to Cloudflare or something and they don't understand what they're working on. They just know they're applying this operation. They send it back to me. So I don't need them to sign a non-disclosure mm-hmm. uh, because they don't even know what data they're looking at. But I think that's kind of more of a rudimentary example and common things we might want to do. Uh, especially now that like machine learning kind of stuff is really popular. Uh, what we want to hide is the model. We don't want to know what program they're running. So now we want FHE with circuit privacy, but FHE with circuit privacy is a whole other layer of complexity that's even further away than the actual stuff. So uh-huh. I think the bottleneck is still for anything that's not rudimentary. We really quickly run into these kinds of subtle edge cases where well, maybe what we actually want to do with this tool is beyond the scope of what the tool offers by itself. And we need uh, more combinations of tools or more powerful tools. And if the rudimentary versions are still things that we only have maybe 10 years of a grasp on, it's maybe hard to start applying them in real world settings or understand how to apply them in real world settings yet. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that then it is the more sophisticated kind of crypto that requires more study. Uh, probably the common tools like camps and signature schemes and everything. Once this modernization process goes through, then it will be forgotten for mm-hmm. a while. But do you think it, it, there's still space to kind of justify going back to basics? I think there's there's always going to be a reason to go back to basics. Like someone will come along with a new perspective and maybe observe something that have, people haven't seen before, like a new new framework, new way of thinking of something, and it, maybe uh, it ends up being way better than anything. Uh-huh. A nice example that comes to mind is all of the NIST schemes, NIST being the uh, standardization process right now that's going on for post-quantum cryptography. A lot of those schemes, not everyone, but a lot of them, they're very fast. There's no reason to make them any faster. Uh, we'd like to make some of them smaller, but they're they're plenty fast. Who cares about making them faster? And yet there was a paper a year or two ago that said, well, you can make this kind of trick with the number theoretic transform. And actually this one scheme is now 20 times faster. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not anything we need, but it was still like, it was a nice observation. Like, hey, people weren't really digging deep into how this thing works. They were taking this part of these constructions at face value 
instead of digging deep to gain a better understanding of, of this basic tool, which has yeah. been around for 50 years and digging a little bit deeper produces a 20 factor improvement. So I, I think there's probably lots of places where, oh yeah, this is standard. This is conventional. This is understood for 50 mm-hmm. years, but maybe with a little bit further investigation, you can get something dramatically better. Mm-hmm. How often do you think there is uh, this sort of situations where there are things that are that seem to be overlooked now when you uh, find them you immediately think oh someone had already thought about it and didn't think it was worth uh, writing about it but actually never no one ever thought about it how often do you think it happens in crypto or in general in in science Mm -hmm. well that's a it's a complicated question people probably under report failures like we, we should probably be documenting what didn't yeah. work more often than we do, but we don't because there's not prestige associated with like, hey, my idea didn't work, but here you go. So you don't go down the same path. Yeah. I think some of those might be insightful failures and that might be useful. Uh, but I don't know. as you know, we, we have 9,000 bad ideas before we have our first good one in a lot of these projects a lot of the yeah. time. So uh, understanding the signal to noise would be tricky yeah. still, but uh, I don't know. I guess there must be like people talk about folklore sometimes in in, in papers. There there must be lots of things where uh, they're not really quite written down anywhere, but either everybody knows or everybody accepts. Yeah, but that notion that everybody knows it, I, I find it a little bit. Uh, I don't know if between disrespectful and elitist, uh, because by everybody they mean their circle of friends and if you are a new uh, researcher in the area and you have no access to the circle of friends then there's no way to to find out if what you're thinking is some part of the folklore or or you're missing something that everybody else knows or more like they know right Mm -hmm. so i think this sort of uh little details should be written down somewhere even though they may seem uh somehow trivial uh, once you spend some time thinking about it, I, I think they should be written down. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be hidden. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think we've come across a couple of times where there's something yeah. written down, like by a routine calculation or something like that. Like, well, it, it, yeah. it did turn out to be routine, but it wasn't described and it took me three hours to figure out what the simple thing was. Yeah, even when you explain it out, uh, you explain out an equation or you elaborate a little bit on uh, the process. I think you paint around the truth or around the the result that you are outlining. You, you paint some details and, and well, this is a result, but actually there is also more uh, more things around this result that may be interesting if you tweak it mm-hmm. out. Yeah, and I I think there there should be more exposition in in yeah. papers, more kind of intuition of like why is this the right notion, yeah. why, why does this approach work? What was the rationale behind this? If it's just kind of wall-to-wall of lemma corollary, it's kind of hard to follow just based on that. But of course, uh, having like a 14-page limit or something is going to uh, make you drop your exposition before you, you, you drop uh, the, the skeleton. Yes, yeah. Just recently, uh, we found in uh, our research like a little, a little detail on that appears in many papers and that several authors take in uh, different approaches into uh, they either decide to do this or decide to do that and when you're a theoretician for, uh, for a theoretician it's like oh it's exactly the same thing you shouldn't care but when you actually want to implement it there's a huge difference between the two so that makes you try to dig into the literature okay is there anyone that has uh, written about it mm-hmm. Uh, about the differences and has has anyone seen that this is clearly better it's, it's uh if, if why why are people still using the other one so it, it's it's very baffling to me that there is no is there's nowhere in the literature to be found and theoreticians just seem to kind of take the approach of the simple explanation that i don't know if it just makes you feel less dumb mm-hmm. <laughs> by not explaining mm-hmm. it or I just just don't care. Mm-hmm. I I think well, we we can kind of see the other perspective a little bit too, mm-hmm. because if if you think about some kind of very specific area or some kind of specific collection of, of, of paradigms or something, if you do it for a long time, then a lot of those connections are obvious and they are trivial, 
And yeah. uh, I, th- I think it can be a challenge to take a step back and think, well, how, how, how will someone seeing this for, for the first time think about this? Will these relationships be obvious to them? And uh, I, I, I think there is a real challenge associated to that because your, your brain will form these connections over time and you won't even think about it anymore. It's going to be, it's going to be a natural thing and you don't even think to, to explain it. Why, why would I write this down? But no, I think trying to take a step back and view the landscape. Okay. Well, what does this mean? Uh, how would I think about this if I didn't have this context or something like that? Um, I think that would help a lot. I think, um, what, what we were writing recently, I, I think there was a number of spots where uh, we, we had a proof or something and it was two lines long or something like that. And it wasn't that hard to add a sentence or two to say, well, this is with that loss of generality or you want to do this because this is going to allow you to, uh-huh. to do this step and you do this, this, and this. M- maybe uh, that this, this, and this is not explained step by step and in, in entire rigor and exhaustive detail, but it gives you enough to piece it together where something as routine calculation gives you nothing to go off of. Yes. Uh, I, I recently heard from two different people that uh, it is kind of a bad idea to explain out all of the details in, in your writing because it makes you look I don't know, dumb. Like, what's curious is that I heard the same argument from two very different uh, directions, mm-hmm. right? Very independent sources. Said, so don't explain everything because it just makes you look uh, look stupid. So, do you think it's, it's, it's like a problem in mathematics or in general that you should just state truths in the paper without elaborating around? Or a paper should be, you explain out what's happening elaborating about the truth and all the, your thought process and how you got there. Because there, there's an argument to be said that, I mean, an article is just is stating a whole bunch of theorems that are true. And as long as they're true, uh, that's it. That's a publication. So there, there are two different approaches. So it, what do you think is more reasonable or who would you vote for? <laughs> well, I think like balance is important. Uh-huh. For example, there, there's a cryptographer. Uh, their their preference is to write these 100-page papers, where 70 of the pages are just repetitions of of the same cryptographic game being played, or like the hybrid the hybrid right. argument. They copy and paste the the setup of the entire experiment onto every page, and on every page they yeah. just highlight the small detail that has changed. And then yeah. 95% of the information is redundant. So yeah. that makes your paper look huge, but also makes the argument very easy to follow. If I miss a step or I, I forgot what changed, I just go back a page. It's highlighted in red or it's in a box. I understand what's right. happening. Uh, and I think that makes learning from the paper a lot easier because I don't have to have as much cognitive overhead to, to keep track of this mental model of what is actually happening. What are the transformations that are being made? Uh, it's written down. If, if I forget something, I'll just go back two or three pages and I'm like, oh, okay, so this is the sequence uh-huh. that happened and, and I'm caught up again. I don't have to reconstruct this entire thing in my head. And uh, I think that's really nice because I think a lot of papers are often very bad places to learn from. Yeah, yeah definitely. But I would think that a paper that is is kind of just uh, giving you the the one after another after another like evolution of the equations may not be as insightful or, or may not necessarily be insightful if it doesn't explain you like the thought process behind mm-hmm. it. So it's, it's probably not just like how long it is, but how much you were able to articulate uh, your thought process in, in, in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like for like the evolution of a formula or something, right? the, the density in, encoded in that is, is pretty large. So just kind yeah. of going line, line by line with that additional explanation is maybe not helpful. But like in yeah. in an experiment where the experiment itself takes up the entire page, uh, maybe each component is has sufficiently small information density that seeing the changes being made is is actually very clear by itself. But I, I think uh-huh. I think the there's a balance to strike. But I, I would definitely lean towards more papers should have more detail. Uh, something someone yeah. told me that. Uh, resonated with me a lot uh, in terms of both papers and presentations and, and so on 
they said the, the whole point of doing the thing we're doing is to communicate ideas. And yeah. if you give a presentation, that's a mess or it's a wall to wall of the formulas and you don't give any intuition or you don't give any intuition in the paper of kind of explaining what was the path that led to this, then it was a waste of time. Why did you even bother to write anything yeah. down if someone can't pick it up and take it and carry it forward? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a one side of the philosophy. Uh, probably a, a more engineering-minded person would say that the whole point of, of a paper is to give you an, an algorithm to implement. Uh, well, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it, it seems to me that I had that sort of feedback uh, a couple of times. So in my opinion, if one is to do theoretical cryptography or, or mathematics or any sort of uh, science that is pure in itself, then just stating the facts as a result is not is not enough. I think if you state a theorem that just happens to be true, but you don't say what's around it or what is the big picture that is around the, this result, what are the connections that you were able to draw to get there, then it is somewhat isolated and somewhat meaningless. Uh, because it seems to me that a theorem in itself is, is very flexible. When we were working on our recent thing, we were able to kind of tweak every variable just a little bit or uh, every hypothesis just a little bit and obtain something different that was just as impressive as the first one. But it was just like a different shade of the same truth, mm -hmm. right? And that different shade is exactly what we needed for our uh, final conclusion. Mm -hmm. And when you just fix it, like and this is the actual result, you don't know what are the things that you can tweak you don't know the entire picture of the result. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's probably an argument for theoretical things to be more uh, explanatory. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I have like two or three tangents on, on this that seem interesting, actually. Uh, what you were describing, I think, actually ended up being one of the most interesting things on what we worked on recently was the yeah. the fixed collapsed version of what people are interested in looks exactly like this. And that provides no insight yeah. whatsoever as to the big picture. Yeah. And I had a conversation with someone recently. They asked, uh, when you talk to a mathematician, why do they seem so hesitant when they're describing things? Uh, why do they give so many qualifiers or ask if people are following along or if they agree or disagree <laughs> or things like yeah. that? And they said, when you talk to a programmer, everything is always absolute. Like everything is obvious, everything's clear. This, this is this is how it is. And as part of that conversation, my take on it was that a lot of the things that you describe in, in in math are not true the way you write them. And when you write something down, you do want to make the most general statement possible. Uh -huh. uh, but if you're aware of what the full level of generality is, you know there's a lot of conditions. You know there's a lot of variables. You know there's a lot of edge cases. So keeping yeah. that in the back of your head and then trying to simplify it. Like, well, it's a little bit like this, except you can't do this and this is not exactly true. But in this very <laughs> specific set of circumstances, it's this really simple thing. And it's, it's, yeah. it's hard to kind of just do that projection of like, okay, this, uh, this context requires exactly this interpretation of this thing so I can project onto the simplification that makes sense. And that's, that's, I think that's really hard to do on the fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But going back to what you said before, uh, briefly about if you should present thing as kind of a, like an engineering specification or or, or a manual or just algorithmically, uh -huh. I think it probably depends a lot on the subject matter. If the thing you're trying to convey is you can do this elliptic curve group operation, uh, you can reduce the number of multiplications from five to four in this particular step. That's a very concrete thing, which yeah. is probably uh, going to benefit from, from a very engineering-like presentation. Maybe the, the reason for the simplification isn't something that has a, a deeper meaning. Perhaps it does, but maybe it doesn't. And that's just the way it works. And there's nothing else to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe writing that out is going to benefit from, en from an engineering presentation. But one of these kinds of, like, well, people understand this projection of this concept. Uh, we want to understand what is the way of thinking 
the way of thinking does not benefit from an engineering presentation. Yeah, I imagine that if you want to implement something, you don't want to go through like a, a hundred lines of poetry of mathematics mm -hmm. in order to get to the actual algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's only when you want to do some, uh, you want to understand the concept deeper so that you can either generalize it or modify it, tweak it in a, in a way that is, is helpful to you or find other applications. It's, an, it's then when you need this uh, 100 lines of poetry mm -hmm. to understand what's going mm -hmm. on. But if you're, if you're doing really yeah. abstract kind of things, I think having the poetic description, maybe not poetic, uh, like ha having, having the big picture, understanding the context, uh -huh. I think helps a lot because if you really understand uh, kind of the essence of the thing, then you're going to be able to make a lot more progress on, on certain kinds of questions or understand uh, very intuitively. No, that can't possibly work because this abstraction doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah. I remember someone told me once after a, a conference, someone had given a talk, they did this, this zero knowledge, um, sorry, not zero knowledge, they did this oblivious transfer construction uh, from lattices. And during the talk, the, the speaker gave a very specific characterization of like, oh, well, this, this geometric property of the lattice is true, which leads to this insight. And the person I was talking to said, well, like that kind of threw me off because I've never thought of it that way. Like that was completely foreign to me. <laughs> and yeah. that interpretation and led to that insight that led to that result just from kind of having that in intuitive way of thinking about what, what the scenario yeah. is. I understand that sometimes it's really hard to jump out of your way of thinking or your way of understanding mm -hmm. something so that you obtain a different point of view. Like whenever I think about lattice-based cryptography, for me, it's very hard to think about the lattices themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I, I kind of just think about the equations that are relevant, right? And when someone thinks about the lattice or, or, or just makes an argument about what's the geometrical uh, interpretation of it, I have to mm -hmm. stop and then say, like, okay, so what are you talking about? Okay, this, yeah, this is, uh, there is a translation problem from that explanation to the way I think about it and then trying to understand and give another interpretation and then give back into the other person's language. It's, it's, it's very strange. Uh, but I think that's the same in, in many areas in math. Like there's people with more uh, geometrical uh imagination or ge geometrical ways of thinking and uh, people them with more algebraic ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So oh, just, uh, just like the, the struggle of changing your perspective probably ties back into that. Uh, well, this is obvious. I, I don't even have to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. That's true. That's yeah. true. But uh -huh. yeah, for me, uh, I think it depends on kind of what aspect I'm thinking about, but a lot of the times, mm -hmm especially with, with lattices like the geometry comes first for me i think about think about yeah. the like the, the machinery of like uh how, how did the gears fit together like how does this engine run um before i think about the equations for a lot of things unless yeah. i'm thinking about kind of uh things at the operation level like well how does the decryption function work uh, i'll probably uh -huh. think about that as, as a formula i'll think about this as an expression but when I'm trying to do something something new, it's uh, always coming from the geometric perspective. I think there, there were many times when we were working together that you said something and then I will go back to my desk not understanding anything you just said. And like a few days later, I will come up with the same um, insight and talk to myself, oh, well, I'm so slow. I just, I just understood whatever <laughs> Philip was saying before. And and I think it was the same. Like uh, sometimes I will say something, and you guys were like, "No, you're completely crazy." <laughs> but then you would come back and say, "Oh yeah, whatever you said that that day, it was. Uh, I I think I understand mm -hmm. it now." So there is a, a lag in into understanding, and I think many times that makes I mean, at least uh, to me it made me feel very stupid. Like it made me feel rather incompetent. It's like, oh no, <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, probably to many young researchers, uh, these kind of situations may throw you off, uh, make you feel that you shouldn't be doing that. Well, on the positive side of that thought, I think it is cool that uh, so many of these different ways of thinking end up being isomorphic. It's kind of 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding that isomorphism is, is going to be tricky. Like, okay, well, how does this interpretation relate to this interpretation? But kind of when, yeah. once you find it, I, I think it it is really helpful to kind of uh, help tie together the two different perspectives. It's uh, really cool. I still find it fascinating that mathematics are very consistent. I don't know why they are so consistent, but they're very consistent. They're always, no matter what interpretation you give them, you always get the same answer. Mm-hmm. But that's probably a more philosophical topic. <laughs> oh, perhaps not. Maybe that's some kind of deep, mysterious uh, algebraic truth or something. Um, yeah, this is probably deep interpretation of why that, uh, deep explanation of why that is yeah, The category theory people are probably working on it. Um, <laughs> the other thing you said, I think um, in that project where there was three of us working together, I think that happened to everyone. I, like a couple times throughout the last year from everyone, like each person was in that position at least once. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in, in retrospect, it was a pretty hard project. It was, yeah. uh, like it was a fairly big undertaking. It, it was kind of ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you told me at the beginning of my PhD, you will uh, look into this specific topic, uh, I would be a little bit daunted by mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely felt like that, especially near the beginning when yeah. uh, you guys had been working for a couple of months and I wasn't really involved and I joined in. I felt like I had an impossible amount of catching up to do and I was yeah. just disappointing you all the time if I hadn't finished something or I didn't understand something or things like that. So this, because it seems to me that it's some sort of imposter syndrome that we all go through. Uh, Do you ever go through it during school, like in grad school or in your undergrad? Undergrad, no, but grad school, definitely. Grad school, I thought everybody in my research group is amazing and I can't possibly, I have no business being here. What am I doing? Yeah. So how do you think a new researcher or uh, someone in grad school should face it or try to solve it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think the challenge now with the internet is uh, we're always exposed to the best people, whatever the topic yeah. is. Uh, it's, it's a short search away, like who's the best weightlifter at this? Who's the best photographer? Who knows the most about whatever? Look at these impressive people, uh, and yeah. I think it's it's very easy for people to get distracted by that kind of thing. And like, well, I, I can't possibly uh-huh. get there. Uh, and I kind of have two, two thoughts surrounding that. Um, that kind of realization I had last year that kind of impacted me a little bit profoundly was I, I don't think it's ever possible to kind of compare y- your life to other people's life uh, through one of these variables. It's, I think it's just a pointless exercise in frustration. You don't know what sacrifices someone made to do the thing yeah. that they're doing that you're admiring uh there there might be plenty of things where uh, they think oh look at this other person they have this and this that i don't have or uh i feel envious that they're able to do blank and i'm 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 stuck doing this and i think just doing those comparisons is is pointless everyone does different things people are successful at different things and uh, i think that's perfectly fine i think just just comparing yourself for the sake of comparison is just a pointless exercise the other thought i had is uh do you read hacker news at all no no i haven't in a while Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i I have mixed feelings about about the website but uh there's often at least an interesting discussion going on in the comments uh people Mm -hmm. contributing different perspectives and kind of uh, arguing with each other in a uh, polite and sensible way. So that, that, that part at least is enjoyable. But there was a blog post about um, so Mozilla. Mozilla recently had uh, went through some downsizing. Some some people uh, were let go from the company. Okay. And there was a blog post by someone who had worked at Mozilla for, I think, 10 years or so. And they were let go. Their, their team just stopped existing. And they, they were, were reflecting on what they had been doing the last 10 years and looking back at uh, where they were 
10 years ago, going into the career, going into that job. And yeah. the reflection of their time at the company that the surface was, that was, that was annoying. This project got canceled. I had to deal with these people that didn't understand my perspective or tried to influence this, or I didn't enjoy this process, or this part wasn't very rewarding, or this was hard and frustrating and things like that. And then they remembered well, what, what did I think going into this process before I had this job, before I had even finished school, I, I had this, this dream of, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to learn that. Uh, and like, these are my, these are my ambitions. And their realization was uh, like that 15 year old kid with these dreams uh, where they are now, like, well, you live those dreams, those at the mm -hmm. time, those frustrating experiences were exactly the things you were looking forward to and hopeful about. And uh, it's kind of really cool that you had the opportunity to experience those things, even though at the time and in the moment, there were kind of pain points and frustrations. But th that is that is what the experience is. That is what it's, a, what it's about when you get to that point of kind of living that dream. That is just what that is. And... Uh, I identified with that a, a, a fair bit also because uh, it's, especially in research, there's always the feeling of there's an infinite amount of things to learn and like, how can I possibly understand all these things? And yeah. what my takeaway was from, from their experience was, uh, well, right now I, I feel like I have this mountain to climb. I'm never going to be a proficient researcher. I'll never... Uh, know enough to do this or, or, or whatever. I, 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 uh, it's really cool when I have insights or when I learn something new or understand a new detail about something, but there's so much to do. And I thought, well, that's probably just what it is. 15 yeah. years from now, 20 years from now, if uh, I'm still fortunate enough to be able to do that kind of thing, uh, there's still going to be an infinite amount of decline and I'll still make silly mistakes sometimes, or I'll still be uh, hopelessly confused by a, by a new topic for a while and, until it starts to click. And uh, that's probably just what it is. This this is what the experience is. Yeah, and it, it just takes probably consistency in order to build a remarkable career, right? It's not that you're just going to click and then you're the brilliant researchers and uh, overnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, it just takes it takes a while, and probably the people we look up to right now had similar feelings when they were starting. Mm -hmm. We just don't see all the struggle that uh, that was necessary for them to go through, so that they are now in the position that they are. And even when, when we read, we start reading papers, and then we go and read the the most important paper in the area, right? And that that paper is amazing and has like. Um, Every line is very dense, is full of information, full of insights. But when you go back into like the two or three or four papers before that, they were so incomplete. They were not that insightful, nor many ideas were cut halfway. And that just paints the picture of how much struggle was in the author to get to this articulation of the problem in such a beautiful way. Mm -hmm that in, in his final work or the work that is important uh, now is presented really pretty. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's probably just part of the journey to mm -hmm. learn how to cope with those incomplete understandings and frustrations. It, it takes years. It, it, that's, that's something that at the beginning we underestimate how long it takes for us to understand something actually well. Mm -hmm. And now that we understand it much better than at the beginning, we know that there's so many things to understand that we have no mm -hmm. clue. Yeah, Victoria, uh, a couple of weeks ago, she made a remark along those lines. She said, uh, a couple of years ago, I was, I was reading this paper. It was maybe eight or nine pages long. It was pretty concise and neat. And she said, I, I remember thinking, yeah, I could write a couple of these a year. And then she said, at some point, I, I realized that each of these equations probably took six months. <laughs> yeah, each one of those uh, insightful equations uh, take a while because there, there's a lot of other questions that are not as insightful mm -hmm. <laughs> they're really really useless my younger sister 
uh, just started mm -hmm. first year. She's doing physics and she was taking uh, like introductory calculus, linear algebra, those kinds of things. And she's been seeing a lot of things that seem very natural to me for the first time. And yeah. uh, that's been a really cool experience for me also, because it helps me figure out uh, that kind of, how do you take a step back and, and see this for the first time again? Uh, how mm -hmm. do you uh, strip away the intuitions and uh, understanding of like, this is what, what the shape of this is, this is how it works and uh, explain it for the first time without having any of those contexts. And it's been really cool kind of see her have these experiences for the first time and learn these things for the first time. Uh, she sent me a yeah. message a week or two ago, uh, something like we're learning about determinants and my mind is blown. This is the coolest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> right away. I thought, wow, I, I wish I had thought when I saw linear algebra for the first time, I thought, wow, this is annoying. I don't care about this. And yeah. it took me five years to really find a use case that was interesting enough to me to go back and actually relearn it all from scratch and start mm -hmm. understanding and appreciating it. That That is probably what you were taking CS in, in your undergrad, mm -hmm. right? Well, it might depend on, on who is teaching it because it, it seems to me that some profs uh, make a huge emphasis on why this thing is cool on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, so probably your, your sister just had like one of these profs that have this spark of mm -hmm. he himself or she herself is very amazed by how cool determinants mm -hmm. are. Uh, because I, I remember when I when saw it on, and I was in high school and the way I saw it, it's just like you do this calculation over and over and over and over again. And that was super annoying. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I remember having like this very uh, cool insight that determinants are really cool when I was taking differential geometry, I think, and the prof kind of forced me to, to actually think on the determinant as a, as a cool thing. Cause you, you, now you relate it into some geometrical thing and say, wow, then th this is actually really cool. So there's probably something to be said about how things are taught mm -hmm. and some profs have more talent for that than mm -hmm. others. Yeah. David's, uh, cryptography course kind of just completely changed my path 180 degrees yeah uh overnight i had no interest in doing school uh no interest in learning math and no interest in any of those things i thought okay i'm just gonna get a programming job whatever make money play video games and then after that course like no that sounds like a waste of time this seems a lot more important i should do this <laughs> yeah yeah i think david is one of those profs that uh will make your mind blown mm -hmm. when he explains something De definitely everything looks much more interesting than if you just read it on a paper or or, or in a book or so. when he explains what certain profs explain they, they i think they have to be themselves really excited about the topic because when they're not you just see like oh yeah just reading the book when they're really excited or when they really like what they're teaching the student gets a lot out mm -hmm. of it i think yeah Thanks to David. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think I'm taking a lot of your time already. No. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I uh, haven't done one of these before, so it's cool to participate. Yeah, I think at some point uh, we should do probably with Elena and mm -hmm. see if we can uh, bring her to talk more about uh, our research insights. I would like to have David here, but he has refused. Why not refused or just because he's too busy? No, I, th I think he just said that it's not for him. <laughs> oh, well, I, I don't really enjoy talking either. I, I prefer listening a lot of the time, but uh, it's cool to be part of it. No, it's, it, and sometimes talking helps you uh, articulate your own ideas, especially when you have to explain it around. I'm very slow at talking, so that's why I have to edit my podcast all the time and cut all of the silences. <laughs> Um, because sometimes I'm thinking what I'm, what I do, what do I actually want to say? Uh, so talking to me, it kind of helps me understand what's, uh, what do I actually think or 
uh, why do I hesitate by saying that? Oh, probably because it's this is not actually what I what I think. It's probably this is uh, not actually the way I want to say it. So, well, it's it is actually helpful, and that's one of the reasons why I, I started decided to do these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So, I, so that I have to, so that I have to revisit my own uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. Right now, I don't think there's a lot of opportunities to sit down and have conversations like this either you can't really yeah see friends or uh, people are busy it's hard to kind of sit down and not talk about work directly or not just talk about something completely time wasting like tv or something yeah this is one opportunity for that and i really appreciate that you took the time to come sorry i've been so busy it took me a while to <laughs> yeah, this the stars had to align so that you can come here. <laughs> but finally, finally happened. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you.